Good morning, Wilshire. Both people here and people online, we're glad to have you here. I just did something I've never done in the 18 years I've been at Wilshire. I walked all the way to the pulpit and couldn't see a blessed thing. These stinking things fog up your glasses. So I assume there's people out there. I still can't see yet. Uh, we're glad to have you here. I am sure looking forward to the day we don't have to wear masks and when people can be here. I don't know if that's going to happen before Jesus comes or not, but I am hoping that it, it happens pretty soon. Uh, we do have lots of people who are watching online, and I know that because through the week, some of them stop by the church building, and I get to visit with them. Uh, this past week, Lucretia and Jeff were here um, to pick up some things for children's Bible study, and while they were here, Jeff called from school, and I got to see Jeff on the phone for just a minute, so they're doing well. Uh, Erna Price gets to watch, and uh, Rod Torres and Paula Quarter, lots of people who are watching this morning who watch uh, from home where they are more safe and need to be protected a little bit. So even though they're not here, we know they're with us, and we appreciate them and uh, their encouragement. One other thing before jumping the sermon, this is, uh, I don't know if you realize this, one of the hardest Sundays for a preacher at this church to preach on because uh, the diversity of this church, we have people from Texas, people from Oklahoma, and any time you speak on the Sunday following yesterday's game, some of the church is going to be gravely disappointed. Some of you are agnostic, and you could care less. I understand that. But just to show you uh, the magnanimity of this church, we've had three Texans leading in our worship today. I just think that says something about Wilshire. Why are you not smiling? It's good to be together. There's a traditional phrase. People say it's a Chinese proverb. Turns out it's not. just makes it sound better. Uh, it's a curse, people say. May you live in interesting times. You've heard that before, haven't you? They don't mean that in a good way. Interesting times means not peaceful, not blasé. I mean, something's going on out there. And you watch the news, you're living life, and you know that we are living in very interesting times. We are living in very chaotic times. The pandemic, politics, the economy, race relations, all that's going on in our culture Every day you wake up wondering what's going to happen today. It just wears you out. It's tiring. And it'd be kind of nice to have just a boring day, wouldn't it? Just to be non-eventful, just everything boring. Well, Jim has started us through this sermon series with that in mind. Not the boring part, but, but with the knowledge that in such a chaotic time, we're looking for something to hold on to. That as everything continues to shift around us and the ground we think we're standing on in parts of culture continues to move, Jim in his foresight said, what are some things that remain true no matter what happens around us? Things that give us hope, 
things that give us stability and things that we can trust in no matter what falls apart. And so Jim, the last two weeks, has talked about two of those things. There's one God. Doesn't matter what happens in the news, doesn't matter how, what happens in your life. This truth remains, there is one God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Nothing's going to change that. that that's not going to move. And last week, there's one Lord. That's not going to change. No matter come or go elections, come or go pandemics, there's one Lord. Not changing. And today I want to talk about another one of those fundamental truths. There is one church. Just one church. Now to be clear, all of these fundamental truths come with a bit of controversy. I'm aware of that. You're aware of that. When, when the Jewish people and the Christians of the first century said there's one God, they seemed crazy. Because the Romans worshipped several gods. Would you rather have one God or multiple gods? Seems to me the more gods you have, the better off you are. Well, Jim talked about that. That doesn't really make sense. If the one true God is the maker of everything, I'd rather have the one true God, wouldn't you? Or the one Lord, lords and kings, they come and go. They become footnotes of history. But our Lord is the writer of history. That doesn't change. But that was controversial. The early church said Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not Lord. And they got in a little trouble for that. And you know as well as I do, to stand up and claim that there is one church causes a little bit of controversy. Now, when I was a kid, we heard a lot of sermons about the one church. It seemed like every time we showed up on Sunday, that was somehow the preacher's topic. There's one church. We talked about the identity of that church, the organization of that church, the worship of that church, the beliefs of that church. Almost every Sunday, every Bible class, every worship, gospel meetings, that was the message that we communicated. And most of the time, that was aimed at our religious friends and neighbors who happened to go to a different church. We preached a lot about the one church. And I don't want to discard those topics. I think they're important conversations to have. But there came a time... When the conversation changed, there were people that said, okay, we've maybe talked about the church enough, maybe even too much. Let's talk about Jesus. And so the pendulum swung to where we talk only about Jesus and we never talk about the church because the church just seems too old-fashioned, too past tense, that we really just want to be people who love Jesus. And in some circles today, any conversation about church rarely happens. And we have found ourselves today in the, in the culture in which church has become a bad word. And there has, there has shown up in religious surveys this entire new group of people. You used to ask people your religious backgrounds, your religious preference, your religious beliefs, and you get a variety of different answers on that. But today, Today, there is the rise of what people in literature has called the nuns. Rise of the nuns. I, I'm, I'm none of the above. I, I, don't, I don't need or I don't want church. I don't need or want community. In fact, I just want Jesus. I don't want the church. 
And in some of those cases, it's simply because the church seems old-fashioned or broken or a relic of the past. In some of those cases, it's because church conjures up bad experiences, hurt and unmet expectations. It's because people, people's understanding of the church is of a, a group of judgmental, narrow-minded, closed-off hypocrites. That's their experience of church. Now, what's always interesting is, depending on your experience and depending on your background, we define words in different ways. We have uh, kind of the nerdy way of saying it. We have the connotative meaning and the, the note of meaning, which is the dictionary meaning of a word. The dictionary meaning of a word. If I ask you, what does church mean? You can open up the dictionary, you can find a meaning. A gathering of religious people. A building where religious activities take place. And there is that, that dictionary sort of meaning. But we also bring to words our emotional meanings. And this explains why sometimes you'll be in a conversation about something and people will argue about the same word, but they, they interpret it in totally different ways. Some are bringing a dictionary meaning, others are bringing an experiential meaning. As you read the New Testament, it's pretty clear. There's one church. Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, I'm, I'm going to build my church. And, and for those apostles, believe it or not, they had both a dictionary meaning and an emotional experiential meaning. They knew the dictionary meaning of the word means a, a congregation, a group of people called out to a specific purpose. It was actually a generic word when Jesus used it. It didn't necessarily have religious connotations when Jesus first said church. But when Jesus defined church or established the church, he was putting it in a different frame. I'm going to take a group of people, and I'm going to call them the church, and they're going to be defined by their confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the 12 apostles, the Jewish men listening to Jesus preach that day or talk that day, they had an experiential meaning of church, even before church as we knew it came to be. Because their experience was there was a group of people called out by God, the Jewish people, who had to stick together, who had to follow each other through whatever happened. So they had both a dictionary and an experiential meaning of the word. But Paul did too. A lot of our readings today came from the book of Ephesians. That's not by accident because of all the New Testament books, Ephesians seems to talk about the church more than any other in different ways. In fact, Avon Malone used to talk about Ephesians and Colossians. They're very similar books. And Brother Malone used to say the book of Colossians is about the Christ of the church and the book of Ephesians was about the church of the Christ. It's a very Avon Malone way of putting things, isn't it? And the book of Ephesians talks about the church in really interesting ways. And the fact that it comes from Paul is even more interesting to me. Because if anyone had a reason to check on the demographic box, what is your religious preference? Paul had several reasons to say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. Remember the first time Paul ever went to church? He walks in, 
And the people say, we don't want you here. We don't think you're sincere. Last we heard of you, you were out arresting Christians, persecuting the church, trying to do everything in your power to do away with the church. There is no way we want you to come sit among us. And thanks be to God, Barnabas said, no, wait a minute. Paul has a story that needs to be heard. And even after Paul becomes a member of that church in Jerusalem, you read about this in Acts 9, later, members of the church are persecuting Paul. They're abusing Paul. When Paul is in prison, people are out preaching against Paul under the umbrella of church. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, there were people in that church saying, we don't believe you're a real apostle. We don't believe that what you're claiming to be is actually the truth. Listen, brothers and sisters, if anyone had a reason to check the box, love Jesus, hate the church, it would have been Paul. But Paul saw past those imperfections of people, and he saw the one church for what God saw that one church as being. So I want you to take your Bible, turn to Ephesians, and I want to show you, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what comes to mind when you say the word church? What do you think of when you hear church? I want to show you how Paul sees the church and why that vision of the church only leads you to believe there's one church. There can only be one church. Here's his first picture. It comes early in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. This text lands in the middle of a prayer that Paul has for the Ephesian church. This church that's in this uh, religiously chaotic setting where people are worshiping multiple gods and the Christians are wondering, is Jesus enough? Do, do we need other religions on top of Jesus? Can we just mix Jesus in with what we've got? And Paul begins to unpack in chapter 1, look, if you're in Jesus, you have all that you need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is found in Jesus Christ. But listen to this picture Paul has of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. As Paul prays that this church will have knowledge and insight into what God has been doing in Jesus, he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put everything under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul, what do you think about the church? Paul cannot think of the church without thinking about Jesus. To Paul, they work together. That what God accomplished in Jesus is he took Jesus, raised him from the dead, and he, he seated Jesus not just with principalities and powers, not just above principalities and powers, far above all principalities and powers. Those words mean all authorities, all things that think they control everything. And God took Jesus and he says, no, he's 
far more in control, far more powerful than all principalities and powers. And he made him head over the church, which is his body. That's what the church is. It is the body of Jesus. Paul uses that description more than any other description. It shows up in Corinthians, it shows up in Colossians, the body of Jesus. You turn over a few chapters in Ephesians to chapter 4 and you see Paul working that image out even more. That together, because of the gifts God has given us and because of the things God has called us to do, that we grow up, Ephesians chapter 4, Beginning in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, each part is working properly, making the body grow as it builds itself up in love. We are growing up into the image of Jesus. That's what Paul thinks about when he hears people talk about the church, the body and the image of Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. He conquered death. And as the head, Jesus was raised to sit above principalities and powers, and he sits above the church. And because there's one Jesus, because, because Jesus conquered death, it only makes sense to say there's one church. Because there's only one head. And when Paul thinks about church, he's not thinking about some heartless organization. He's not thinking about some flawed group of people. He's thinking about what the church is called to be, the very image of Jesus in the world today. So that when people see us, they see Jesus. When people hear us talking, they hear the words of Jesus. When they see us ministering, they see how Jesus would minister. When we see us loving other people, the people say, that's who Jesus was. That's what it means to be the body. That's what it means to be the church. And if there's only one Lord, it only makes sense that there's one church. Because we are representatives of the one Lord. Well, if you ask Paul, what, what do you think of when you think of church? What comes to mind when you think of church? He had another image in the book of Ephesians. You couldn't go into the, the city of Ephesus without being keenly aware of a remarkable temple that sat in the background. The temple of Diana or Artemis. I mean, this thing was the seventh wonder of the world. It was twice the size of the Parthenon. This was an impressive temple. And at that temple, there was worship to the fertility goddess. There was worship, uh, agricultural goddess. She was responsible for a lot of stuff. And all of the attention of Ephesus was kind of built around that temple. Paul got in trouble when he was in Ephesus back in Acts 19 because he was going around preaching about Jesus being Lord. And there's a guy who was a a silversmith who says, you know, if this message kicks in, it's going to kill our economy. And so Paul was arrested. There was a riot in Ephesus, all because of this temple 
and what the gospel meant for that temple. Now, everywhere you went in Ephesus, that temple was in the shadow. Or rather, you were in the shadow of that temple. Can you imagine being a little group of believers saying, Jesus is Lord, there's one God, there's one Lord. We are the people of God. We are the body of Jesus. But you feel so small and insignificant and powerless because you don't have marble halls like that temple. So Paul, what's that make the church? Well, he tells us. Chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being joined together and rises into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are being built together to become a dwelling place of God in which God lives by his spirit. I love that picture. This little church seeing that massive marble temple. And Paul points to that little church and says, God doesn't live there. God lives in you. You are the dwelling place of God. That same spirit that that took Jesus from the grave and raised him up is the same spirit that dwells not in that big marbled hauled temple. It dwells in the people who name the name of Jesus. Now that's an image. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a Christian and walking through the streets of Ephesus and seeing that temple everywhere you went and thinking... It's empty. There's no God in there. Because the God is among the people who are the church. That's a different image of church than what a lot of people have today. That the church is some empty building, that it's some stale group of people. It's a different image, brothers and sisters, than sometimes what we have of ourselves. We look around and we think, all those people have the power. All those people have the influence. And somehow we've developed an inferiority complex that says, I'm just a Christian. And Paul, if Paul were talking to the church today, he says, no, you're not just a Christian. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the place where the God who created everything decided to live and to take up residence. The church is the temple of the true, one, and only living God. Don't tell me the church is some fractured, old-fashioned, worn-out group of people. Paul says the church is the living temple of God. That's what comes to mind when Paul thinks of the word church. And so it only makes sense if there's one God... There can only be one church. Because that's where God dwells. That's where God works. That's what God is doing in the world. Okay, one more image from Ephesians. 
when Paul thinks about church, he thinks about God's future in the present. Here's what I mean. Chapter 3, which Josh read for us, Paul unpacks his ministry. He says, God called me into the ministry. There's this mystery that's been hidden for the ages, but now that mystery is being made known. That even Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish law, those outside of the Jewish faith, outside of the Jewish heritage, even Gentiles are allowed to be part of what God's doing in the world today. That was a mystery. But look at what Paul says about the church in chapter 3, starting in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. You hear that image? Well, it says the church is not some afterthought of God. The church is not some byproduct of some plan gone poorly. The church is part of the eternal purpose of God. That when you open your Bible and you start reading, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, even before those words were spoken, God said, I've got a church, I've got a plan in mind. And that plan is going to be executed by people who name the name of my son one day. The eternal purpose of God has been given to the church to make known to the world. Now, flip your Bible back one, two chapters to chapter one. Because Paul tells you the ultimate plan and image of what God is doing in the world. He says, look, God has predestined us, he's chosen us, he's adopted us, he's made us spotless and without blemish, he's given us an inheritance, he's forgiven us. And the reason God is doing all of this, Ephesians 1 and verse 10, is because God's ultimate plan for all of creation is to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what, that's what all of this is moving to. That's what God has always been doing. To say, I want the perfection of heaven, the beauty of heaven, to be lived out among the people on earth. I want the sovereignty of God to be recognized and trusted on earth the way it is trusted in heaven. That's God's eternal purpose. That's always God's purpose. It's always been God's purpose. And God says, I'm going to make this a reality. I'm going to send Jesus and reinstitute or establish the kingdom of God on earth. And those who name the name of Jesus are going to become the place that I point to the world and say, see, this is what I want for all of you someday. This is what I'm always trying to get to come about so that the church is a signpost of what God is ultimately planning to do one day in Jesus. We are God's future in the present. We are the perfect plan of God to be executed here and now. 
That's God's eternal purpose. And he says, I'm taking the church. And I'm holding those people up who've been saved, redeemed, adopted, chosen, predestined. And I'm going to take them and I'm going to show every leader, every king, every emperor, every president. This is God's plan. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're thinking. But here's what God's doing and what God's thinking. This is where God dwells. This is where true power exists. So that when people look at the church, they don't see some worn out, old-fashioned, beat up, tired group of people. They see the power of God on display for all of creation. What would happen if we believed that? What would happen if church quit being a place where we go on Sunday and started being this vision of God? That we're the people that God sent to show the world what he's ultimately going to do. Here's the true context of what's happening in Ephesians. I know it's in the news constantly. I know people get tired and frustrated of hearing it. But it's the truth, it's in Scripture. The church is the place where the world sees what true love and acceptance in the name of Jesus looks like. Because when Paul writes in Ephesians and says there's one church, he's really saying there can't be a Jewish version of the church and a Gentile version of the church. Because God has one plan. And God's plan is to bring heaven and earth together in Jesus. Does it make sense to say, I'm bringing everything together, but you have church over there, and you have church over there? How foolish would that be? There's one church. And if the church can't get this right, then don't be upset and surprised when the world can't get it right. Because God called the church to get this right. God called the church to show the world what this looks like. God is holding the church up as the place where the principalities and powers look to see God's ultimate plan. Unity is not a purpose of the church. Unity is the purpose of the church. Because that's what God's doing in all of creation. I want you to think about what that means. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I assume he's writing to a people who's discouraged by the chaos unfolding around them. The persecution and the pain, the poverty. And Paul writes this letter to the church and says, I need to remind you that you are the place that God has promised to work. That you are the people among whom God's presence is to be found. That you are the very eternal plan of God for all of creation. Go show the world that. There was no doubt in Paul's mind where God could be found or what God was doing. God has promised to dwell in one place, his church his people. And God has promised 
to set his spirit alive and at work in one place and in one people, his church. That promise was not made to any other organization. That promise was not made to any other people. And that promise was not made to any other cause. It was made to one church. And I think the church needs to be reminded of that today. I'm glad we live in a country that we can exercise our voice and vote. But God did not promise his power would work through political arms. He said, my power, my spirit is in the church. And whatever happens in November does not change where the spirit of God promised to work. Because the spirit of God is not found in any party out there, not any candidate running. It's found in the people of God who is the temple of God. Because there's one church. One church. The power of that church is not dependent on political parties or charismatic leaders or economic circumstances. The power of that church is in the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's how Paul starts the letter of Ephesians. He says, I want to say this prayer for you. That you would have all wisdom and understanding and knowledge of what God did in Jesus. That Jesus was dead and, and God sent his spirit and raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. And made him head over all things, which is his church, his body, that fills the fullness of all in all. And then as chapter 2 of Ephesians starts, he says, now you used to be dead. And you have been raised. And you are now seated at the right hand of God. And now you are the temple of the holy living God. That's church. That's the one church. There can only be one church. Now, a few more things and I'll be done. What's interesting to me is that Paul writes this church in Ephesus, and, and like usual, Paul says, I want you to take your letter and exchange it. Everybody read the church, but read the letter. But Paul was saying this of that congregation. Paul had a belief that that different Christians in different places together made up the church. I mean, he wasn't, it's not as if Paul thought only this happened in Ephesus. But all of those things are true of that congregation in Ephesus. They were the temple of God. And anytime you find believers joined together in the name of Jesus, they were the temple of God. Wilshire is all of those things Paul says in Ephesians. The body of Christ, the temple of God, God's plan for what's coming. 
And the question is, are we being that church? When people hear us talk, when people see us interact, when people hear the things we say, when people see us serve, are we being that church that Paul envisioned in Ephesians? And the other part is all of us have an important role to play in that. You are living stones in that church, Paul says. Not just the elders or the preachers or the deacons. Anyone who names the name of Jesus Christ is a living, breathing part of the temple of God. He says when each member does its part, when, when you take your gift that God has given you and you use that, that together each part is growing up into the measure and stature of fullness of God. Are you doing your part? Look, I know a lot of people have been hurt by church. They've had unmet expectations. People have said and done things in the name of church that is not the church in the image that God envisioned. And you may be disgusted and discouraged. But Paul says, no, wait a minute. I want to show you the church that God has in mind. And I want to ask you, are you doing your part as a living stone, as a person gifted by God to show the world what is to come? You see, Paul had every reason to be among the people who said, I love Jesus, but you can keep the church. He wasn't like that. Even though they doubted him at times, and even though they, they persecuted at times, and even though he felt abandoned by some people, Paul still saw what God was doing among his church. And he called all of us to live up to that image of the dwelling place of God, of the body of Jesus Christ, of God's future come in the present. And so, he ends this chapter of Ephesians with this prayer. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's why there's only one church. This morning, I want to invite you to accept the message of Jesus Christ and to become a part of that living temple, that body of Jesus, and that image of God's future playing out in the presence. And I want to invite you to accept the gospel invitation where God says, I'll forgive you, I'll wash you, I'll cleanse you, I'll give you an inheritance, I'll give you my spirit, and I'll place you into the structure of the living temple of God. You can do that this morning.
but putting Jesus on in baptism and stepping into the life of the Spirit of God at work among His church. If we can help you do that this morning, we invite you to come while we stand and sing together.